0: No. For a second there, I'm like, what are, what are we supposed to say? Oh. <laughs> you meant louder, with more emphasis. Hey, I'm glad you're here. Um, hey, we are under grace, not the law, right? And so what that means is, of course, that it is not all of our efforts that make us right with God, but it's faith in Jesus Christ alone. And it's too bad on a day like today, because showing up to church when it's snowing had to have counted double under the old system, right? But... Under Christ, it's just normal. Anyway, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. And it's good to be with you again. A few of you have noticed I haven't been preaching a lot this month. Um, That's for a couple of reasons. One is I just need a little bit of time personally, but also I was, uh, you know, kind of prayerfully thinking about what is going to start next week. Uh, So we're going to pause our study of Acts after this Sunday, and next week we're going to begin... A series where we are joining with our student ministry and taking three weeks to look at the subject of sexual wholeness, um, which uh, you know is a, a really big topic. And I know there's some nervousness and some anxiety just about what actually are we going to do with that. I did want to suggest uh, two things. Um, one is, if you're a parent, uh, use discretion. This it is a sermon. It's not going to be sexually explicit, but. Um, uh, also, you know, maybe just if, if you have had conversations with your kids about sex, they'll do just fine. If you have not had those conversations yet, this might be a series that would be a little confusing for them, so use discretion. I also want to just acknowledge this, and I, you know, we have to acknowledge this, but it is so painful and full of grief. Uh, you know, the nature of, or just the the commonness of sexual abuse and sexual violence in our world and in our community Uh, can make something like this incredibly triggering. And so if someone has taken advantage of you in some way uh, sexually, be kind to yourself is what I'm going to say. Like, just be kind to yourself. Um, If it would not be good for you to be in a room full of people talking about sex, I give you permission to watch from home or skip. Not that you need my permission. Um, Clearly, uh, no one needs my permission to skip church, but... uh, You know, that's not what I was, uh, I'm uh, digressing. Uh, What I'm trying to say is this, just be kind to yourself um, and uh, be where God has you in this healing journey. Um, So that's coming up next week. Uh, This week, though, we're not going to talk about any of that. We're going to talk about Acts chapter 9. Find your way there. Uh, Acts 9 is a good place to pause because Acts 10 is a whole big thing and a real important part of the book of Acts. So we'll come back to that later uh, in February. But Acts 9, I want to ask us a question as a rhetorical question, ponder it in your mind. Uh, But this is where I want us to start and end. What actually changes our broken world? What actually changes this broken world? We're in church, so what is the right answer? Jesus. Jesus. Yes, <laughs> thank you. It's Extra points. Um, I don't know why I'm giving out points today. That's not. Um, so it's not just because we're in church. The right answer is actually Jesus, right? You know, apart from our relationship with Jesus, we are irredeemably broken, all of us, irredeemably broken. And if you doubt that, just casually glance around it, I don't know anything that is happening in our world. Uh, it is so broken, and even the best of us who try to do good have that longing in our heart of, hey, something is just missing, and apart from a relationship with Jesus, we never find it again. So the answer is Jesus. Jesus is what changes this world. The question I'm asking, though, is more about us as God's people. Like, what are we supposed to do? Because we want to participate in that, in his kingdom work to redeem every last thing on earth. So what is it that we need to be spending our time doing as God's people to participate in Jesus' world-changing work? Is it, uh, I, I don't know, we just need to teach people the truth. Like, we just need to convince people about doctrine and theology and the right way to think about God. Uh, is it, I don't know, do we need to just convince people to, that they are sinners? Like, that's the problem. People don't realize how sinful they are, so we just need to convince everyone they're sinners. Would that help the world? Is it church? Is that the answer? If everyone on earth went to church every Sunday, would this world be a better place? Don't answer that question. <laughs> What is it? I, like you, am very busy. Can't do everything. So if we only do one thing, what should we be doing? Think about that. We'll come back to it. Acts chapter 9. Here's what's happening in the book. The church starts in Jerusalem. Uh, It spreads out from there. Judea, Samaria, some good things are happening. People are coming to know Jesus. Uh, The first Gentile puts his faith in Jesus. The Ethiopian eunuch becomes a Christian. Uh, The worst. Uh, critic of the church. Saul converts to Christianity. So some really good things have happened in the first nine chapters of the book of Acts. Things are going moderately well, but they're about to change in in a significant way in chapter 10, and and nothing is ever going to be the same after chapter 10, because what starts as a local movement is about to go global and impact the entire Gentile world. So the story we're going to look at today is two stories, actually. Right at the end of chapter 9, uh, the author of Acts, Luke, puts it is almost this transitionary device. So you have the first eight and a half chapters of Acts, there's all sorts of important stuff happening, and then 10 through the end, chapter 28 of Acts, is like real, a lot of focus on the, the unclean Gentiles coming to Jesus. What we're going to look at is the transition between those two moments. Acts 9, verse 32. Luke writes, as Peter traveled around the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. Now Lydda is an area of uh, Judea that's close to the Mediterranean Sea. There's a lot of major roads that are kind of converging in this area. And so it was an area where certainly there was a lot of Hebrews, there was a lot of Jews, but there also was a lot of Gentiles. They're mixed together. The people reading this originally would have read that and said, oh yeah, I see what he's, he's getting us ready. There's some foreshadowing in this. Peter is going to Lydda. Verse 33, here's the first story. There he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. So there's something about the way Luke describes this that makes scholars think that Aeneas probably was not a believer. And I love the way Peter engages with him. He says, Jesus Christ heals you. He doesn't even say... I heal you in the name of, of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is a man who, this was not always the case with Peter, but now has this incredible humility. He knows what we said at the beginning. It's Jesus who changes the world. And so he's trying to connect people to Jesus. He's not trying to connect them even to himself. He's not building the worldwide ministry of Peter. He's saying, no, it's, it's not even me. I'm just, he, I'm just the messenger. It's Jesus Christ who heals you. And obviously this incredible healing leads to great faith. Uh, Luke gives us a second story in this area. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She's always doing good and helping the poor. Uh, There's actually some fascinating things to observe in this verse. First, let's observe this. Her Hebrew name is Tabitha. Her Greek name is Dorcas. Kids can be so mean. Bless her heart, right? especially those Greek kids. They're always making up names for you. No, that's not. It meant something different back then. Um, but we're going to call her Tabitha. You know, Tabitha is her name. Let's also note this. What, what does Luke say about her? He doesn't call her a believer, as has been his custom. He calls her a what? A disciple. Now, we can't tell this in English, but something really fascinating is happening here in the Greek. One of the downsides of being an American Christian is the Bible was not written in English? We understand this, right? The Bible was not written in English. So we have to understand as we are reading Scripture that it is a translated document right, into English, and not everything always translates. It's important. For example, uh, we have uh, the doctrine of inerrancy, the idea that the Bible is without error in its original languages. That second part is really important. This is why you might look and say, well, why don't we have like a God-approved version of the Bible in English? Well, this is why, because all of the English versions are translated. They're not inerrant. That's why at times they make different decisions on how to translate the text. Now the translators, very smart people, doing their best work, but they're looking at the same, what we would call inerrant documents, the original manuscripts of Scripture, trying to figure out how best to render that in English. This is why when we study Scripture, we have to do it with a great deal of humility. We can't just say, well, this is what it says in my Bible. You better do it. You know, we have to sometimes get behind the words and understand what is happening there, especially in certain instances where it matters. Here is an instance where it matters. Acts 9, verse 36. Um, You may or may not know this. One thing that's true in ancient Greek, in most cases, the nouns will be conjugated in either a masculine or a feminine way. Uh, How many of you speak Spanish? Very similar to what happens in Spanish. There's a masculine or a feminine conjugation. So as translators, when you're reading the original manuscripts, trying to figure out how to render it in English, it's not a big deal, but you have to constantly be thinking about that. For example... If a New Testament writer says, greet the brothers, uh, you have to look at that and say, what is this New Testament writer saying? Is he saying, say hello to the male believers because he's used the word brothers in Greek? Or is he saying, say hello to all of the believers, both male and female, but he's just following the custom of the day in Greek that you would often use the masculine conjugation when you're addressing a mixed gender crowd. Are you with me? So how many of you have an NIV Bible? Okay, that's my preferred translation. Um, the, The NIV approaches it this way. They look at it and they ask this question. What is the author intending to say? So if the author is very clearly intending to say, I want you to greet everyone in the church, both men and women, then the NIV will translate that, greet the brothers and sisters, even though in Greek it just has the word for brothers because they're trying to follow the intent of the author. How many of you have an ESV Bible? ESV Bible, a few few of us. That's also a great translation. ESV approaches this very differently. The ESV translators will look at that same verse and they will say, no, he actually uses the Greek word for brothers, so we're just going to put brothers and we're not going to include sisters, even though he's clearly talking about both things. Can you see how both of those approaches to Scripture are probably valid and useful at different times. This is why we have so many different translations, and this is why when we're studying a passage, it's really helpful to read it in some of these different translations, because every translation might approach these decisions differently when they're dealing with this ancient language uh, that none of us, for the most part, really speak anymore. You tracking? Here's why I bring that up. Um, You didn't say yes, but I'm going to assume you are. Here's why I bring that up. (laughs) Um, Because when Luke calls Tabitha a disciple, uh, you don't see this in the English, but in the Greek we would note that this is the only instance in the New Testament where the word disciple is used in its feminine form instead of its masculine form. So every other instance in the New Testament, when you read the word disciple, it is the masculine conjugation of that noun, except Luke 9, 36, where he talks about Tabitha as a disciple. That is notable. Had he not done that, We might have wrongly concluded that Jesus was just like all the other rabbis of his day and he would only let men be his disciple. But that is not in fact the case. Here he is using the title that was associated with people like Peter to talk about this woman Tabitha. And he's pointing us to this idea that she is a woman of substance, right? This is a substantial person in the early church and she has a substantial ministry. She is a woman to be reckoned with. And Luke describes her ministry. He says she's, doing good. She is taking care of the poor. She's leading a ministry to the poor. And for a few reasons, we're going to get to in just a second, we know that that wasn't just the Jewish poor. This is an area where there's Jews and Gentiles, and she was taking care of both, leading this ministry to the poor. Now, more on that in a minute. Here's what happens to Tabitha. Verse 37. About that time, she became sick and died. Her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Uh, let, let's just recognize this. This is something that is like hard for all of us as humans. Uh, like There is this reality with death that sometimes really good people die too soon. Uh, and sometimes really bad people live to be a hundred. And it, like, it, just, it doesn't make rational sense. There's no justice in it. And what we believe is that Jesus has conquered death ultimately. And that one day in Christ's eternal kingdom, all that death has stolen from us will be restored. But that day is not today. And so we suffer with this, and that is what's happening with these believers here in Joppa. They're suffering because this incredible disciple of Jesus, Tabitha, has died. Well, They're going to get a taste of that victory that Christ has over death. Look at what happens. Verse 39, Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and the other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Luke is a brilliant writer. Like he's one of my favorites. Like there's a there's an intelligence to the way that he writes the text that is really cool. Did you see what he just did there? Uh, so Luke calls her Tabitha. Peter calls her Tabitha. But in this moment, all these widows have surrounded Peter and they're showing him the clothing that she made for them um, because they were poor and they couldn't take care of themselves. And in that case, Luke calls her Dorcas. Why? Well, Luke is pointing out to us that these widows were not Jewish widows, so they didn't know her by her Hebrew name, Tabitha. These were Greek Gentile widows, and they would have known her by her Greek name. Uh, They may not even have spoken Hebrew, so they wouldn't even have known that name. So here's what we know about Tabitha. She's uh, an incredible disciple of Jesus. She knows how to make clothes. Uh, She's enlisted that skill in this kingdom work. And so she would make clothing for the poor widows, including the Gentile widows. And now those widows are so torn up because she was so meaningful to them in their life. We read two weeks ago about uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, which was a mind-blowing story, like that, that would be the first Gentile convert, everything about it. Uh, in, in a few weeks, we're going to read about Peter and Cornelius' house. That also like, just blew the mind of the apostles. Everybody's like wrestling, what do we do with all this sort of stuff? Meanwhile, here's Tabitha, this disciple of, G- of Jesus, already ministering to Gentiles, and it appears somehow teaching them about faith in Jesus. Now, we don't totally know what that looks like, but you got to appreciate the impact of Peter when he walks into this room and he is mobbed by Gentile widows talking about this woman and how meaningful her ministry was to them. I think God's teaching Peter something here. He's getting him ready for something that, uh, you know, years ago he would have never gone for, the idea that unclean Gentiles could have faith in God. And God is teaching him this lesson from this lady disciple with two names. Here's the end of the story. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning towards the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes. Seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand, helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Pretty cool story. Uh, another thing that we would get if we read this in Greek, uh, it's, it's very reminiscent of another story. Do you remember in Mark chapter 5 where Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead? Pretty amazing miracle. And he shows up to this house, and they're like, she's dead. Sorry to bother you. He's like, she's not dead. She's asleep. And he chases everyone out of the room except for Peter, James, and John. And he bends over this girl, and he says, Talitha kum, which in Greek means little girl arise. Um, I don't know what to do with this, but it, it, it is obviously significant. Peter standing in this room alone with Tabitha, what he says is just one letter different from what Jesus said to Jairus' daughter. Jesus says, Talitha cum. Peter says, Tabitha cum. Tabitha, get up. And I don't know if that has any significance at all, but I, I do appreciate this. Like Think about Peter and the journey that he has been on and that he witnessed his Savior raise this little girl and how, how that must have meant so much to his heart to say almost the exact same thing and see that his Savior still lives, and his Savior still repairs what death has stolen. Um, it's just a cool moment. Uh, Luke ends that moment with this just throwaway sentence. You just skip over it if you didn't know the significance. Peter stays in a tanner's house. Tanners, uh, they would make leather. That that was their craft. And so according to Jewish law, uh, people who would touch the skins of dead animals all day would be ceremonially unclean. And so a good Jewish boy like Peter would never stay in a house like that unless he had already started giving up hope that his ability to keep the commandments is what makes him right with God. And you see this transition that Peter is already beginning to understand. It's faith in Christ alone that makes me acceptable to God. It's not keeping all of the rules that God has established. And so it's just like this beautiful throwaway line, but it's so packed with significance for us who know the journey that Peter's been on. So that's the story. All of it, foreshadowing. There's these Gentiles, these unclean Gentiles. That's us, people. There's these unclean Gentiles out there, and Jesus cares about them died for them, and the gospel is for them. And Luke is beginning to give us clues as to how that is going to unfold in the next few chapters. Let's go back to our question. Uh, What changes the world? Practically, what should we focus on because we have limited time to participate in Jesus' world-changing efforts? You know, we might read a story like this and we might conclude that, uh, you know, I mean, Peter's pretty prominent uh, he's doing all these miracles. Man, if I could do miracles like Peter, that'd change the world. It might. I mean, that, that, that's possible, but I don't think that's actually the lesson here. Plus, I don't know about you, I can't do miracles. So far, I mean, maybe, but so far, I can't do miracles. Um, You know, raising someone from the dead, that's amazing, amazing. I see why people put faith in Jesus. I'm not minimizing that, but sometimes those big events, especially in a book like Acts, can distract us from the real work of God's people on earth and send us off in a different direction. I would suggest this. The world was changing and the gospel was advancing through ordinary acts of love done by people like Tabitha. That's why the world was changing. The apostles, um, you know, the deacons, like these leaders of the church that we have all these stories about in Acts, like they did really cool stuff. I mean, if, if you knew someone who raised someone from the dead, you might write that down. That's pretty cool. Um, but that does not mean that that's what everyone who believed in Jesus was doing. In fact, I would go out on a limb and say the vast majority of believers did not do miracles like the apostles. The vast majority of believers were simply witnesses to Jesus Christ in their community, and they loved the people around them. That is what they did. So miracles are awesome, but I think the danger that we have is they can distract us. We have to recognize this. Miracles have never been God's strategy to change the world. Miracles have never been God's strategy to change the world. God's strategy is not miracles. It's people like Tabitha. That is his strategy. Here's this woman living in her community, Walking the streets, saying, good morning to people. How are you doing? Noticing, here's someone who doesn't have adequate clothing, and I know how to make clothes. So why don't I make something for her? Just doing ordinary acts of love, and it was transforming that community. And in all those ordinary moments, she did ordinary things with great love and witness to the grace of Jesus. That has always been God's primary strategy. And the miracle's nice, But the miracle is not the point at which God started working. You might look at a book like Acts and say, I don't, you know, gosh, I mean, these guys, Peter, John, I mean, look look at what they're doing. I'm, I'm nobody, I'm nobody special, I'm just ordinary. You're in luck. That happens to be exactly what God is looking for. We see Tabitha, this ordinary woman, she did two things that every believer in Jesus is capable of doing, every single one of us. The first thing she did is she took care of people around her regardless of their standing with God, right? She did not stress about this Gentile thing. The men were in Jerusalem debating, should we share this with the Gentiles? How, much, how Jewish should they become? Meanwhile, Tabitha is not worried about it. She's not in Joppa saying, oh my gosh, they're sinning. Should I even be around them? Those unclean Gentiles, that wasn't her approach at all. Her approach was if they have a pulse, they are worthy of my love and worthy of the love of Christ, right? So that's how she was doing ministry. And it's astounding how ahead of the game that she is. Don't worry, the men are about to catch up in chapter 10. Here's the other thing so remarkable about Tabitha. She just uses her ordinary skills for incredible kingdom purposes. Nothing special, just ordinary skills. Uh, can you raise someone from the dead? Like, raise your hand up high if you can. That would be incredible, incredibly useful if you could. But uh, I can't either. I can't raise someone from the dead like Peter did. Uh, but can you sow? I also cannot sow. Um. <laughs> I might have a better chance of raising someone from the dead, but uh. <laughs> but do you get my point? Do you get my point? Okay. Tabitha sewing is this valuable kingdom work just as much as raising someone from the dead. Certainly just as much to those widows. The ordinary skills God has given us, done in love and in Jesus name are the primary tool God will use to change the world, and I would submit to you, has used to change the world. That is how the kingdom advances, not through miracles, although those are nice. I think that's what Tabitha knew, that the kingdom of God was advancing through her stitches. Um... I think what God wants, what he's always wanted strategically is an army of ordinary people spread out into every community with diverse and useful skills, helping others with great love and bearing witness to his son, Jesus Christ. That's what God has called us to. That is our identity as the people of God. Um, This isn't actually in my notes, but I did want to throw this out there. I, I was talking to somebody this week who's incredibly wise and he's done like all sorts of great stuff all across the globe for Jesus. Um, and we are talking about like these last few years and COVID and just the implications of all that sort of stuff. And he said something, just stopped me in my tracks. I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since we talked. Uh, he said, he made this comment. He said, I think the effect of 2020 and COVID, that it somehow gave us all permission to be selfish. I was like, oh, I feel that. There's something about announcing to the world that there's some invisible virus that could kill you at any moment, that what it does to the human heart is we all have the same response. Well, I've I, I got to take care of myself, take care of me and mine. There's only so much toilet paper and eggs out there. I better get some, you know, <laughs> right? And suddenly this shift has occurred where it's like I'm, I'm mostly looking after myself and I've, I have a little extra, then maybe I'll look after my neighbor but that's not what we were created to be. We were created to be like Tabitha is God's people, where whatever skills I have, they're not primarily mine, but they're his, and somehow I'm extending those to others. And there's something about the selfishness. I feel it myself. I don't know if you resonate with that at all, but there's something about that. I've been looking after myself too much. And there's a shift. We have to recapture our identity as the people of God, that are changing this place through the ordinary skills God has given to us. That's what he is looking for, an army of ordinary people with diverse and useful skills, doing things with great love and in the name of Jesus. You know, in the church, we, we talk frequently, or not frequently, but we talk at times about uh, spiritual gifts. Have you heard that term, spiritual gifts? It's in the Bible. Um, I actually think, like, when it comes to the kingdom... Uh, just as relevant are our non-spiritual gifts, you know. Um, God cares just as much about those. Sewing is not a spiritual gift. That's not listed anywhere in the text. But here in the hands of this ordinary woman, it is this incredibly powerful force to change her community. So, let me close with this question. What are your non-spiritual gifts? What are those things that God has given you that you may not even associate with Him? You may just be like, I'm just good at that thing. But, you know, as a Christ follower, everything is associated with Him, right? What are those non-spiritual gifts that you possess that you could be like Tabitha? Is it finances, parenting, real estate, sports, engineering, art, writing, IT, medicine, sales, education, camping, gardening, banking, management, law enforcement, fishing, lawyering. Someone told me that's not a word. Um, It is in the South, lawyering. Um, Music, running a small business, accounting, web design, military service, film, sciences, marriage, fundraising, math, Marketing, insurance, sewing. I could keep going. That's a partial list, right? We could list all day abilities that we have, skills that we have. I just make an observation? Nothing on that list is inherently spiritual, but everything on that list, in the hands of someone who really believes Christ is real and he came for every last person on earth, can be a powerful force for his kingdom when done with great love and in his name. That's what Tabitha knew. Um, I think sometimes in our eagerness to serve God, and this comes from a good place, a good-hearted place, right? We're like, man, God, you've called me to something. I want to serve you. So what do people who serve God do? And you can read Scripture and you're like, oh, look at what Peter's doing. And, or you may look around the earth and, hey, that, that dude, his job is serving God. And so I, I should do that sort of stuff. But I think Tabitha's story points us maybe in a different direction. What about this? When you're thinking about your divine purpose, what you were created for, instead of asking the question, well, what does it look like to serve God? What about asking this question? What's something I enjoy and have capacity for? Right? Probably both of those things are relevant. What's something I enjoy but also am good at? Like, I, I'm, I'm okay at it. I've been given some skills in that area. And then you ask the follow-up question, is there a way that I could lovingly serve others through that ability? It's a different way of thinking about kingdom work. Um, but all of those things that we enjoy and have capacity for have potential To become a location where the kingdom of God comes to earth like it is in heaven. So, to close, let me put this list back up here. Um, Again, just a partial list. This is supposed to be, like, uh, hopefully it'll spark something in you. I know it is not as easy as, hey, just do it in Jesus' name. Uh, Like, I know, like, it takes a little bit more complex thought and creativity, and you need to talk to the Holy Spirit about, how how would I leverage this thing for you? Um, but that is the job. That's what God's called us to, not to just take care of ourselves, but to somehow see those things that we have been given as primarily for him and for this world. If you struggle with how to do that, I I do want to say you're in a good place. Gosh, you know, we've got lots of weaknesses as a church. One of our strengths is the way that our people figure out how to take non-spiritual gifts and leverage them for the kingdom. I know a guy, he remodels houses, and he said, Hey, maybe I could enlist some high school workers who could get paid, learn a skill, and get some spiritual mentoring all at once, just because he knows how to re- remodel houses. I know a guy uh, who does some lawyering. <laughs> Uh, Because he's a lawyer. Um, And he uh, approached our partner at the Exodus Road and said, uh, hey, is there a way that my services could help? And they're pursuing, trying to figure out how do we bring prosecution and civil suits against people who are profiting off of human trafficking. It's brilliant. I know a woman who has a passion for childbirth. Uh, and, and one of our mission trips in, in Uganda, she said, I think God is saying, I need to do something about this, and she just started a business as a doula to serve women who are going through pregnancy. I mean, there's innumerable ways, and we literally could talk for 20 minutes about things that are happening in this congregation. I just want to say this to you. If you're stuck, if you're like, I, you know, I don't know, I just, I just have a normal old job, um, this is a great way to engage with other believers at this church, is to just say, hey, could you help me figure out what it would look like to leverage that for kingdom purposes, to do it with love and in the name of Jesus. That's what we need to be about. I, you know, listen, miracles are cool. They're cool. Uh, they're just not God's primary strategy. God's primary strategy is using our gifts, our abilities, our spiritual gifts, our non-spiritual gifts spread out in every community in his name. As we close, I want to give you some time just to think about it. The band is going to come up and do a couple verses of a song. We'll leave this list up on the screen again just as a prompt just to think, God, what are you saying to me about my non-spiritual gifts? How could I be more like a Tabitha? Oh, Lord Jesus, we come to you and we just, we're always amazed at how faith in you changes everything. And so, God, we, we ask that our, our faith in you w- would put a, a purpose in our heart that affects everything we do, even things that we wouldn't normally associate with you. God, give us vision and creativity to use those abilities that you've given us in your name and for your purposes. God, we want to be a church of Tabithas. Would you empower us to step into that? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.